Today we're reading Psalm 51, which you can find on page 888 of your Black Church Bibles. <clears throat> For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offering. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Thanks, Ellie. Good morning, everyone. Uh, again? I already said that just before. Um, <laughs> um, some... Um, some psalms, you read them and they just feel like a lot more weighty, don't they, than, than other psalms. And I think this is definitely one of those psalms, isn't it? It's a super um, weighty psalm. I know that I've felt that throughout this week. Actually, the last couple of weeks as I've been reading through it and, um, and preparing for today. Uh, but it's the amazing thing about this psalm, isn't it, is about, like with all that weight that we feel as we're reading it, um, actually where it leads us or, or who it leads us to. It's such a glorious reality, such an amazing thing to be able to uh, reflect on this morning together. I don't, I've been thinking through prayer and, and talking to God, and I don't know, you might be here today and you think, you think of talking to God, of kind of, you kind of, you might come to God a bit broken and kind of expect His judgment, expect to get in a lot of trouble. Um, and what we read today is that you actually find mercy. Uh, you might come to Him and, and expect a bit of a cold shoulder. Uh, what we read here today is that you actually find compassion. You might actually go to God expecting some sort of transaction in prayer. And actually, what we find from God isn't transaction, it's grace. It's an amazing thing that we get to look at this morning as we come before God in confession, in repentance. Uh, but, but, but before we get there, uh, one of the days of the week that I find myself always forgetting about, I don't know if you're the same, is bin day. Is anyone else, else the same? Yeah? I just want to run through a bit of a scenario with you, Okay? I want you to imagine that it's, it's 10.30 at night, it's the middle of winter, all right, you've just climbed into bed, 
You've brushed your teeth, like you're in your PJs. The lights are all out, but the doors are locked. You're going through that kind of mental checklist to make sure you've done everything. When the thought goes through your head, right? Ah, it's bin day tomorrow. You know, I'm going to need a bit of a show of hands and participation here. Do you, A, jump straight out of bed and go and take the bins out? Or B, do you convince yourself that you're going to wake up in time to beat the garbage truck the next day? All right, who's A? Who jumps straight up out of bed? Who, who goes and gets it? There's, there's a, a bunch of hands. Yeah, okay. Who convinces themselves that they'll do it the day, the next day, and they'll beat that? Yeah, I'm, in, I'm well and truly in that boat as well. And um, yeah, I just kind of lie to myself. I find <laughs> it's, it's a really helpful thing, isn't it? Having someone come and just collect your rubbish like once a week. Super convenient thing that we get to enjoy in this part of the world. It's weird that it's something we forget about, right? It just kind of goes to the back of our minds. Like we don't have to deal with it ourselves. We can just grab the rubbish bin from outside, drag it onto the street. Someone else comes along and deals with it. It's a really great convenience. We've been doing this, this series on prayer over the last few weeks. And, and this morning, we're looking at Psalm 51, a psalm of confession and repentance that recounts a prayer of David's. Now, if, if the word repentance is, is a new word for you, repentance means doing a 180, to, to turn around, to go in the opposite direction that you were going. In the Bible, repentance means doing a, a 180 from a life of sin and rejection of God, to turning toward God, to living a life that honours Him. That's what we see David doing in this psalm. Because, you know, if David's life at this point could have been described in any way, I reckon the perfect picture is actually of a bin bag that has split open. Has that ever happened to anyone? Right, like you, you pick up your bin bag, there's a, there's a little split in it and garbage just goes everywhere and if there's something soggy in that bin bag, it's like, it's the worst, right? Well, that's David's life at this point but all the gross garbage of what David has done is actually on display for everyone To see, David's done some, some truly horrible things and it's all spilling out in the open, just this mess. And how, do you, how do you deal with mess? I'm not talking about a messy house or even that, that gross bin bag spillage. Uh, I'm talking about uh, like, like when you really know that you've done something wrong. How, how do you come before God in that kind of a state? It's not, not a very light topic this morning, is it? You know, I think we fall into this trap uh, as Christians where we can start thinking about the sin in our lives a little bit like bin day. You know, what I mean by that is that we can actually treat Jesus a bit like a convenience. Uh, like, like, better take the trash out, right? Like, rather than a saviour who we are in desperate need of. Rather than our Lord and God and the judge of all things. Actually, maybe you're here today and not a follower of Jesus, and that's, that's kind of your perception as well. But in Psalm 51 this morning, David's guilt is, is well and truly on display, and we see what David does with the mess that is in his life. We see his desperate need, we see what he does with his sin, with his guilt. God is not just a convenience for David. Now, it's not a light topic this morning, but as I said at the start, it's a glorious reality that we get to think about today. Because in repentance, in confession and coming before God, we meet a God whose mercy and unfailing love has made a way for us to come to Him. Has made a way for perfect justice to be done, for hearts to be made 
brand new for a relationship with him to be restored. It's an amazing thing. And the first thing to note about David's uh, prayer here is that David is not uh, confessing his sin, he's not repenting of his sin so that he can gain a relationship with God. It's not about gaining something from God, it's a prayer that arises because of the gracious relationship that God has held out to David. And three things that I think we need to pay attention to from this psalm are this. The first is that David's mess, it is our mess. The second is that David's God is our God. And the third is that David's prayer is our prayer too. Something that's going to come up on the screen. See, the line to write down this morning in your, in your leaflet is this. Uh, David's mess is our mess, but David's God is our God. So David's prayer is our prayer as we turn in repentance and faith toward Jesus. Uh, so firstly, David's mess Now, King David, I reckon everyone in this room has heard the name King David. He he was the king in the Old Testament that reigned over Israel. He was a king who loved God. He was a poet and a musician and a warrior. David is known as the king who was after God's own heart, a very good king. The kind of of king you think, wow, what a man. There's hope for humanity when someone like this is in power. But then we read about what King David does, both to Bathsheba, her husband Uriah, and to the Israelite people as well. And it's truly horrific. David in 2 Samuel chapter 11, if you want to turn your Bibles there, while surveying his his city, he spies a beautiful woman called Bathsheba who's bathing, way in the distance. And David sees her and, and he's just filled with desire. And he's a king, he can get get what he wants, right? So he calls for her to be brought to him, knowing that she is the wife of one of the soldiers who has gone to war while David sits safely on his throne in Jerusalem, a man called Uriah. And David sleeps with Bathsheba. It's hard to know exactly, but it's likely that she didn't have a lot of choice in that. And later on, David gets word that Bathsheba has fallen pregnant. And he begins to get worried. He knows that he's done the wrong thing. But can he get away with it? He calls Uriah home from the war, gets him drunk, sends him home, assuming that surely Uriah would sleep with his beautiful wife Bathsheba and that David could just claim that the pregnancy is is Uriah's. But Uriah is an honourable man, knowing that he has left his fellow brothers in arms fighting at war. Uriah refuses to enjoy the comforts of home while there are good men still fighting for their king. He says this to David, he says, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will do no such thing. It just makes what David does next that much worse, right? David comes up with a a clever plan to hide his sin. Commands Uriah to be sent into the worst part of battle, and when the fighting is fiercest, David orders for those around Uriah to be drawn back so that he is struck down and killed. And he is. Faithful soldier, servant, is murdered by his king. So David the murderer hides his, uh, what he's done, his adultery, behind 
murder. And looks like the honourable king that everyone really wants him to be. And he takes Uriah's wife Bathsheba into his own home to marry her, to look after her and her unborn child. And thinks he's gotten away with it. That is, until Nathan the prophet comes before him and shares a story with him. And he says this, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who would come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who would come to him. Verse 5, we read, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan says to David, you are the man. You are the man. David could trick the people around him into thinking he was doing the right thing. He could hide his sin from them. But you can't hide sin from God. You you can't fall into that trap. And in Psalm 51, we read of David's recognition of this. And and more than that, just see this great remorse from David, don't we? As he realises what he has done. David recognises, he realises just how deep his sin goes. How deep it goes in its direction. How deep it is in its origin. How deep it is in, in its nature. David says in verse 3, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you were right in your verdict, justified when you judge. See, David knows the direction of his sin. It's against God. But the question comes to mind when we read those verses, right? We think, what about Bathsheba and Uriah and all of Israel, hasn't David sinned against them? Hasn't he done the wrong thing against them? He has. But what I think we are reading here is that David's understanding of sin is that it's even worse than what Israel would have judged it to be. It's worse than what Bathsheba would even have judged it to be. It goes even deeper than Uriah could judge it to be if he were alive. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict. You are justified when you judge. How easy it would have been for David to go to another Israelite, right? Maybe one he knows and and likes him. And to say, like, I messed up. And for David to maybe downplay it, to make some excuses. And for that person to say, yeah... You messed up, David, but you can't be entirely to blame and and for some of that weight to be lifted from his shoulders. Have you ever tried that one? When you know you've done something wrong? I reckon I've done that more than once. We do it because I reckon we can fool other people into helping us feel better about ourselves, but you, you just can't fool God. David knows that the direction of his sin, the depth of it, 
if it's against the God whose rightful place is on the throne of his heart, but who David has just shoved off so that he can play God for himself and follow his own rules. He understands the direction. But he also understands the origin of his sin. See, David isn't seeking to cast blame anywhere else, is he? He doesn't cast blame at anyone else. He's coming to God and, and he's not saying, yeah, but this event in my life that happened, that, that's, that's, that's what made me like this. this. This one really bad event, like your old mate, like Saul, he kept trying to kill me. So I guess I just get a little bit murdery sometimes. Like that's kind of what... No, he doesn't make that excuse, does he? He doesn't make any excuses. He says, surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. David doesn't cast the blame anywhere else but at himself. And he knows that the nature of his sin it's in his heart. Deep down in there to turn away from God and sin and rejection, to live in a way that dishonours the God who made him, who loves him. The heart's like, like the engine to the body, isn't it? It steers the direction of our worship. A guy called Thomas Cramer once wrote this. He said, What the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. See, the heart is what drives the direction of our lives. And so it is what drives our worship of things that are not God. David knows this. It's why he prays. He says to God, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. See, David is coming before God and saying, I and I alone have done this evil thing. I have sinned. My sin is against you. I have no one to blame but myself. And the nature of my heart is such that I can't change I need you to bring about change in me. When we think about ourselves, about our own lives, about our own hearts before God, well, not a single one of us can sit here, can we, and say, I don't share in David's mess. It's a mess of sin. If we do say that, well, remember Nathan coming to David and sharing that story and David's indignation? What does Nathan say? You are the man. In that case, David's mess is not only our mess, but David's hypocrisy becomes our hypocrisy too. I know it's mine. I'm very happy to sit and pass judgment on other people. But what David so helpfully points out here is that God is the only one who gets to play that part. David's mess is our mess, and what are we to do about it? Well, notice in this psalm that as David owns up to his sin, he's not saying that he will try harder next time. He doesn't say that he'll make it all better somehow, as if he could. His opening line, it says it all, doesn't it? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. David takes it straight to God. See, David's mess is our mess, but so is David's God. That's point two, David's God. See, every step of the way here, David's response to his sin is that it can only be dealt with by God, and that David needs God's forgiveness. And he calls upon his God to show mercy 
to withhold the judgment that David knows he deserves. That's what mercy is. David does this, not on the grounds that, that he's an all right bloke. He does it on the grounds of God's unfailing love. Remember I said David's prayer isn't a prayer trying to gain a relationship with God. It's a prayer that arises because of the gracious relationship that God holds out. And David is fully dependent on this God to deal with his sin. It's not lip service. It's not, oh, it's bin day. I've done the wrong thing. I better take the trash out. David is all in. I've sinned and I can't do a single thing about it. I deserve your judgment, God. Please have mercy on me. Verse 2, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David hates it. He's dirty from the mess of sin that he is in and he's asking God to do something about it. David says in verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Hyssop was a plant that was used in rituals of purification. It would be dipped in blood, it would be sprinkled over a person or a home, and that person or home would be declared pure, clean. David continues, let me hear joy and gladness, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. The weight of guilt that David feels, it has this uh, divine hand and it's crushing him. Have you ever felt that? Maybe you're feeling that today. David seeks pardon so that instead of this overwhelming and crushing feeling and weight of sin and guilt, he might hear and feel joy and gladness in restored relationship with his God. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. See, David, knowing that he has so recently failed... He asks not just for the joy of being saved from the consequences of his sin, separation from his God. He asks for a strength that is greater than his own to keep him from failing again in this way. He asks his God to sustain him, asks his God to help him. So dependent on God. In verse 11, David, David, he's pleading not to be cast out from God's presence or for God to withdraw from David. This longing for a renewed relationship with his God, a God who's so graciously offered it. And David seeks the kind of restoration that will mean he can lead others in returning to God. In verse 13, then, then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you, that others will repent. He says, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Saviour. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. And you think, how will this come about? What could David possibly do to convince God to act in this way toward him, to to create that new heart, to forgive him, to not want to, to flee from David's presence or to just destroy him and pour out all of his judgment on him? What could David do? It's absolutely nothing. David says it in verse 16 to 17. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Instead, he says, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. David comes before God in this way. And why? Because he knows that it is God he has offended. 
And God is the only one who can forgive him, who can do something about his sin, about his guilt. David, right at the beginning of the psalm, calls upon God to show mercy. And he brings before God nothing to say why God should show mercy. He's bringing all his brokenness, all his sin, all his guilt, everything is done wrong. He brings his broken and contrite heart. See, what that means is that David isn't just sorry for his sin because he he knows he's going to get into trouble. He's not just sorry for his sin because he knows that he's going to get in trouble. He knows there are consequences that lie before him. He knows he's hurt a lot of people. That kind of sorrow is called attrition. That that is a a, a bin day sorrow. That is all about you. A sorrow that says, I'm sorry because I know I'm going to get into trouble. David is sorry because he loves God. He knows God loves him. And he's offended God horribly. He's rejected him fatally. And so he comes to this God asking for mercy, asking for forgiveness, based solely on who God is as the merciful and loving God. But what about everything David did? There needs to be justice, doesn't there? The answer is yes, there does. But before we get there, we need to be reminded, David's mess is our mess. Now, most probably we are all sitting here today, uh, we can say that we didn't do what David did. Like, are there any kings or queens in the room? No one sending people off to war or anything like that? Right, obviously it's a little bit different. But we've all said to God at one point or another, I don't want you on the throne in my heart. I'm going to be, the, I'm going to be my own God there. As Christians, we still fall into that trap, don't we? I know I do. And to say otherwise is to buy into that hypocrisy of David's. You're all guilty of offending God in the same way, and sin equals judgment. It means not being able to draw close to God. It means rejecting relationship with God and saying you'd rather not have it. It puts up that barrier that we can't get through. But David has prayed this amazing, hope-filled, joy-restoring and God-dependent prayer. He prays this prayer of faith. Trusting that God will make a way for justice to be done and for forgiveness and restoration to be done as well. See, God has made a way for justice to be done. We know this in a way that David didn't. He has made a way for us to be cleansed with hyssop, not in a physical outward expression, but inwardly. In our very hearts, he has made a way to create for us clean hearts. David asks for God's mercy, for God to withhold his judgment, and God does withhold it. Because on the cross, when Jesus died, that is when the judgment God mercifully withheld from all of us was poured out in full on Jesus, so that the broken relationship we had with God could be mended, so that our hearts, messed up by sin, might be replaced by clean hearts, so that God's presence could be with us through his Holy Spirit working in us, always to make us holy, to present us as blameless before God on the day our King Jesus returns to bring us home. See, when Jesus died on the cross, this is what he made possible. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 3. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement 
through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is what our God has done for us, has done for you. And if that's news for you this morning, or point three, David's mess is our mess, but David's God is our God's, and so David's prayer is our prayer too. I'm not sure if you noticed in the reading the words that are in bold before verse one. It reads, for the director of music, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. See, David recorded this prayer, not so that others could just read his words and, and listen to them and think about like, oh man, look at what David's doing. But so that they could also join in and say those words as well. That's what I take verse 18 to 19 to be in light of. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then balls will be offered on your altar. See, what will benefit and build up God's people? A relationship with God. Sin doesn't just get in the way of having a relationship with God. It makes it impossible. You can't tell God you love him and stab him in the back at the same time. Now, David's writing of this psalm for the director of music. It's actually a wonderful invitation. An invitation to repentance for everyone who seeks a relationship with God. To turn away from sin in sorrow for how you've treated God and to turn to Jesus in faith. Trusting that what he accomplished on the cross, that is what deals with your sin. Nothing else. If this is something you haven't done today, please hear that invitation loud and clear. What kind of God makes this possible? The kind of God who desperately loves you and wants you to love him back and be with him for eternity. I want to give you an opportunity in just a moment to do that. But it's important to say this, I think. Repentance and faith for forgiveness of sin, it's a one-time thing for salvation but it establishes the pattern of response to sin in the life of a Christian for the rest of their life. Repentance and faith for forgiveness of sin is a one-time thing for salvation, but it establishes the pattern of response to sin in the life of a Christian for the rest of their life. And the reason it's important to highlight this is that you might be sitting here today having put your trust in Jesus and you know you've sinned again. You've messed up and you're worried that that might mean you've lost your place with God. You've lost a relationship with God and you need to gain it back somehow. That's, that's not what's going on. See, repentance and faith for forgiveness of sin is a one-time thing for salvation, but it establishes the pattern of response to sin in the life of a Christian. Now, we, read, we read this passage out a lot when we read, when we pray the words of the confession here at church. So you know that this isn't coming from me, it's coming from God. We read this in 1 John 1, 8 to 2, verse 2. We read this, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 
If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So repentance and faith for forgiveness of sins, a one-time thing for salvation but it establishes that pattern of response to sin. Because while we have been saved from judgment and sin, uh, we still live this side of the new creation, don't we? Sin still exists in our world, and we still give in to the temptation to sin. The life of a Christian, it's actually a bit like a foal that has just been born. Uh, when a foal is born, it's, like, it's really wobbly on its legs, isn't it? So in need of the protection and care of its mother and so conscious of that. But in those legs, they get a little bit stronger. They get a little bit less wobbly. And that foal kind of looks around them and thinks, oh, it's pretty interesting over there. Like, I'm, I'm going to go check that out. Uh, not realising that that's where the wolves are. In the life of a Christian, and this is going to sound pretty strange, the life of a Christian is meant to be a wobbly life. It's meant to be a wobbly life. You'll never not need Jesus and need to depend on him. But as we await his return, we do fall into that trap and and stray. But Jesus isn't a convenience, is he, like Binday? See, he's a saviour we desperately need. And our lives should be characterised by a prayerful dependence on his forgiveness when we mess up. Trusting in his forgiveness and what he achieved on the cross for us. I'm just going to, I'm going to ask a couple of volunteers, Carl and Jamie, they're going to um, get up now and just walk around and hand out something to everyone in this room. This might be like a little bit, a little bit of a stranger kind of thing for you. Uh, but David has taught us about how to come before God in repentance and how to talk to him about our sin. I'd like to finish by giving us all the opportunity to uh, reflect on how we've been living before God lately. Maybe there is some sin that you are caught up in at the moment and maybe you're just just sick of it. You you don't know what to do. Maybe that is sexual sin like David. Uh, Maybe you have hurt someone and you know it but have been justifying that somehow when you know you've done the wrong thing. Maybe... You've been putting something in God's place and you're just ignoring that you're doing that. Treating something like comfort as your God and and living for that. I know that's a struggle for me. I need to repent of that in my life. I reckon it's a struggle for a lot of us here. Uh, Maybe you have realised this morning that you are a hypocrite and have been standing in self-righteous judgement over someone else while ignoring your own sin. I know I do that all the time as well. Maybe it's something else. Uh, Whatever it is, I'd like to invite you this morning to spend some time bringing it before God and talking to Him about it. Uh, Some words are going to just pop up behind me on the screen. Uh, And when you're ready, I'd like to invite you to pray those words. Just in your heart, you don't need to do it out loud. God hears you. And then I'd like you to, to pick up that nail that has been given to you that's being passed around. Now, there's nothing whatsoever that is special about that nail. It's just a little, a little nail, right? But it's been given to you to remind you that you aren't forgiven because you can bring something to God to make things right yourself. 
suffer because 2,000 years ago, Jesus was nailed to a cross with nails much bigger than these ones where he died so that your sins could be forgiven. So hold on to that nail while you were praying. And then when you're ready, I'd like you to come up the front and just throw that nail into this bucket here. See, God doesn't hold your sin over your head. He forgives you. So don't hold on to that nail. Be rid of it. Remembering that God has forgiven you. Now, I'm not going to force you to do this. You might find it a bit weird or uncomfortable. That's totally fine. You can just stay seated. Uh, It doesn't mean that you aren't praying that prayer or or seeking Jesus. Um, But if that is you, I'd like to invite you uh, to do that. I do ask, though, that um, that if you do have that nail, that you maybe just keep it in your pocket, uh, not to kind of hang on to to guilt, but we have a lot of young kids around, so we don't want nails floating around in the room. Uh, but if you do get up and it's the first time you've ever prayed a prayer like the one that's on the screen, uh, can you please let us know that you've done that? You can do that by tracking down myself or Carl or Lou. You can also let your friend here know that you've done that. You can let us know on a communication card that you can fill out as well. We'd love to talk to you about that. Uh, but let's come before God the way David teaches us to. Recognising our sin, that the blame is on us and no one else. And saying sorry, not because we think it'll get us out of trouble, but because we know and love the God we've offended and are sorry. And because we can have confidence in his forgiveness and assurance of what he's done for us. I just want to pray the words that are on the screen. And then I'd like to invite you to spend time reflecting for yourselves. Most merciful God, I humbly admit that I need your help. I confess that I have wandered from your way in sin and rejection of you. I have done wrong and I have failed to do what is right. You alone can save me. Father, I repent of my sin. Please forgive me and please be at work in my heart to produce the fruit of the Spirit that I may live as a follower of Jesus. This I ask in the name of Jesus, my Saviour. Amen.